0: This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. On this program, my guests and I regularly predict the future, whether we mean to or not. Usually it's around how a particular tech is going to impact the world or how changing cultural values are going to impact us. We all do it. The things we believe are things we're especially proud of. We all take pride in having a particular perspective or certain principles, but some principles held in high esteem in one generation will be looked down upon in another generation, I just learned that from my next guest, Professor Patrick Allett, who says the more you study history, the more you're convinced you don't know what's happening next, at least as a historian. And Professor Allett should know he's a British historian and academic who serves as the Cahoon Family Professor of American History at Emory University, in Atlanta. He studied at Oxford, then moved to America and gained a PhD in American history at the University of California, Berkeley. He is engaging, provocative, has a great sense of humor. His TEDx talk and posted lectures are a joy to watch, and they will cause you to think deeper. So join us for this conversation on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on Earth today is data. How we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Professor Patrick Allitt, thank you for joining the QTS experience. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here. So, by way of introduction, sir, um, we've got so much here to cover. I want to dive right into it. But I discovered you off of this very intriguing. Uh, These are the times I I love the universe for doing this for me. Uh, TED Talk that you completed um, in the recent past, and I believe the title of it was "Why History Matters." It was very compelling, you're very engaging. Um, that's how I got introduced to you, we reached out to you. And um, so my audience doesn't get mad at me for not calling you professor or doctor, you asked that I call you Patrick, I'm gonna do my best to do that throughout, thank you again. Why Why did you put that TED talk together? Why was that important
1: to you? It was part one of the TEDx uh, yeah. meetings, which are a, a subordinate to the most famous ones. And every couple of years, they have a, a TEDx session here at Emory. And it was organized by a group of students. And one of them reached out to me and said, would I be interested in doing one? Uh, And my answer was, yeah, I'd be glad to do one. But I know that normally they're they're showcases for the individual. And I didn't feel as though I got something particular to say about myself. But I did feel as though I got something to say about what I teach and research about, which is the study of history. So I wanted to make the argument there that uh, or to justify the the reasons for studying history, while also cautioning my listeners that you can study history a lot and still not know what's going to happen next, and in fact that the more you study history, the more you become convinced that you're not going to know what's happened, what what will happen next.
0: When you were when you were doing the talk, um, the way that I wrote it down in my notes was this idea that um, historians and history can predict the future, and you have a great time, if you don't mind sharing some or all of that, about how that can lead to the wrong um, information or assumptions.
1: Yes, I gave the example of the prelude to the First World War and the prelude to the Second World War, that by about 1900, there hadn't been a major war in Europe for since 1815, since the Battle of Waterloo. And lots of very intelligent Europeans were convinced that by now uh, the the, the interactions between the nations, what we would call globalization, was so advanced and they were so intricately interwoven and civilization was advancing so rapidly that there could never again be another great war. Mm. But of course, that proved to be uh, drastically wrong. The war did break out in 1914 for what seems like inadequate reasons. Then there were, I mean, the soldiers in the lead up to World War I had always been preparing for the possibility of war, but they said, if war does happen, it will happen very, very quickly and it'll all be over in a flash. That's also proved not to be true. It turned into the dreadful stalemate of the trench warfare. So at the end of World War I, everybody looked back and said, you know, how did we let this happen? And the answer they came up with was, we were too ready to jump into action quickly because we thought it would happen so suddenly. Mm-hmm. We must be sure not to make that mistake again. So then in the 1930s, as Hitler rose to power, the Western leaders, particularly Neville Chamberlain, the English Prime Minister, kept appeasing Hitler, because he was responding to the lesson he thought he'd learned from World War I, which is don't jump into a war too quickly. But of course, the result of that was that Hitler took advantage of of conciliation and appeasement, And when Britain did finally start to fight, it was far more difficult to defeat Hitler than it would have been five years earlier. So then at the end of the Second World War, everyone looked around and said, what did we do wrong? Answer, we weren't quick enough to jump into conflict. So the two world wars both teach a lesson, but the lessons contradict each other. One is don't be too slow, and the other one is don't be too fast. And so since then, of course, policymakers have been aware that it's possible to draw either conclusion. And depending on whether you want to go to war, you, you, you use the one that's most appropriate. It's certainly true that America went to war in Vietnam because they were using the example of the lead up to World War II. Even though Vietnam and Vietnamese communism didn't present a threat, a direct threat to America, the lesson that the, the advisors to presidents Kennedy and Johnson drew was, uh, but we mustn't appease them. That's the mistake we made in the 30s. Let's fight the enemy while he's far away and weak, because if we don't, we'll have to fight him when he's much closer and much stronger.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there even value then? Can you predict anything out of, you know, you take a lesson. So for example, in World War II, um, I've now watched a number of movies about Winston Churchill. I've read a number of books. When I was a kid, the first two books that I can remember really capturing my imagination in, um, I don't know, what was that, in seventh grade or so, sixth or seventh grade, 12, 13 years old, was um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by uh, C.S. Lewis, and of course, The Hobbit by um, Tolkien. And completely, as an adult, I read a lot of uh, certainly C.S. Lewis's nonfiction stuff, whether it's apologetics or other things I read many times, Tolkien, their study of the Inklings. And, um, and in that same era, I came across um, uh, Churchill, who, I don't know if he was looking at history, but he had this sense of, hold on, this is the exact wrong response to the rise of the third reich to adolf hitler early on not just when the you know the planes were flying in the to the spain in the spanish civil war but early on what value then is there or or is there value is it was he just lucky
1: well we honor winston churchill because it turns out that he was exactly right yes in the 1930s he was regarded as a superannuated old victorian imperialist mm-hmm. whose time had come and gone Uh, But because he was um, he was really the most prominent member of parliament who warned, starting in about 1932, 33, Hitler is very dangerous and we need to be absolutely um, forthright in opposing him. At the time, respectable opinion regarded him as shameful and disgraceful. But of course, he was vindicated by circumstances. But then I think it's, I mean, it's difficult for us to get back into the frame of mind of responsible, intelligent people in the thirties right. who,
0: who,
1: who had, they did have good reasons for saying he was wrong. Sure. sure. And so, I mean, the example of his having turned out to be right is a marvelous reminder to us of the need to be tolerant of people who say strange things in our own time, which seem ridiculous at the time, but later on might seem to, to have been prescient.
0: Yeah. One of the things that you said that I love, um, absolute, well, there's a lot you said that I love, but one of these things really got me thinking again. I've heard it so many times, but I needed to hear it again, which was, we need to have the courage. I'm putting it, this is my words. Where's the evidence take us? I've heard you in other, I couldn't just stick to that one TEDx talk. I've gone on to a number of talks that you graciously I, I don't know if you just emery or who you work with but you've published a number of your history lessons essentially to uh youtube for sure and i know people can order them i have found them very approachable um, but one of the things across these things that i've listened to you is where's the evidence take us like where let's not be afraid let's evaluate it let's you know this is how i interpret it don't have bias where's the evidence take us it may take us to someplace that's uncomfortable it may reaffirm uh, idea we're pre supposed to or may challenge us. But let's have the courage to go there and evaluate it. Side note, I don't know that we do that very well these days. I have a 19, 21 and 23 year old daughters. This is a this is an area of uh, discussion for us all the time. But when you, you know, when you are we're thinking about Churchill, I was thinking about Patton. Patton said, look, here's a threat. And I'm not trying to pick on any particular group. I'm just saying that here's another historical figure. Some things maybe he got right. Some things he got wrong, but said, this is a real threat and we shouldn't stop what we're doing now. Um, and he wasn't listened to. So I'm wondering how, how is it not just that we have an open mind? Um, but h- how do you think that somebody like Winston Churchill, not just the circumstance that he happened to be right, but why do you think he was so certain that he was right? Did he use history as evidence to predict what might be going on? Did he have some experience with this kind of
1: behavior? Uh, very much so. Yes, he was himself an excellent historian, and in fact, in the years between the two world wars, he made most of his living as a as a as a historian, he was always, a, nearly always, a member of Parliament. Mm. But he also wrote a lot of books, including a four-volume biography of the Duke of Marlborough, who was one of his predecessors, mm. a great warrior of the early 1700s, who uh, was vital in winning one of the great wars against France. He himself had been a soldier in the late 1800s. He was a prominent member of the British government during World War One. He wrote a massive history of World War One called *The World Crisis*, and his general view of humanity was. It was hard-headed, but it turns out to have been very realistic. A lot of people in the late 19th and early 20th centuries had the idea we're evolving to the point where we no longer need to use the old-fashioned ways, particularly the ways of warfare. We've gone beyond that. But his view was humanity is never going to go beyond that. It's a sad truth. uh, And therefore, because people are always going to fight, we need to be ready to fight on advantageous terms. So it was a sort of disillusioning uh, grip on reality, uh, but also uh, a highly realistic one. Obviously, right now, as you and I are talking, Dave, we're in the middle of the of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right. Uh, I think it was it was easy to believe in the last five years that it could never possibly happen. But now of course we're re- we're reckoning with the fact that it really has happened. Another thing that Churchill <laughs> believed in was that um autocratic government is very bad because it, it, it prevents the autocratic leader from being advised realistically by people who can stand up to him. He famously said, democracy is the worst possible system of government, except for all the others. And I think that's a wonderful way of saying it's actually a great system in view of the fact that human nature is so imperfect, because no matter how bad a particular elected official might be, He's going to be voted out before long and the voters will have a chance to at least say we're not going to put up with more of this one. But obviously what's happened to to Putin since nine, since 2000 is that nobody has been strong enough to displace him. And he's he's risen to a position of autocracy in which he can take actions which can have catastrophic consequences. And there's nothing to stop him from doing so.
0: Yeah, it's um you, you, I wrote a phrase that you said that I loved, which was, um, it would be nice if history taught us tidy lessons. I thought only a British history professor could say something like that. That's so amazing. It would be nice if history taught us tidy lessons. What, What do you mean by that? And what are some examples other than what we've alluded to already?
1: Well, I was really thinking there of the way in which when you watch a historical drama, Um, I don't know, there's lots of good movies based on Shakespeare plays. There's lots of history dramas, Downton Abbey, uh, things like that. Uh, Lots of films about the American Civil War. They tend to end in such a way as to give you a wonderfully satisfied feeling of fulfillment. But of course, the reality of history is that it's hardly ever like that. It won't gratify our, our preferences. And so the longer you study history, the more you come to be suspicious of historical dramas which end up making you feel great because really what they've done is to smooth out all the edges to give it a a, a a clean and tidy ending and the reality of history is that it's much more ragged than that so you you actually need to sort of put on your emotional uh warning systems not to let yourself get taken in by by happy endings
0: it's so easy to do yeah I mean, it is so easy to do you apologize in advance, please don't hang up on me. But when you the first example, or the main example you gave, you actually offended me at first. And I have learned with a number of one of my favorite speakers is a guy named Tim Keller. Tim speaks a lot. He's a um, evangelical out of um, and scholar. He spends a lot of time speaking at Oxford, Harvard, he's one of the only people of that um, of a that sort of faith ideology that's spoken at Google Talks. And he has no qualms, very kind, scholarly man about taking on very hard questions, kind of spinning them on their head. And and in in an interesting way, you reminded me of Tim Keller very much because you said, you were making this point, if you remember, in the Civil War, um, both of these groups thought they were right, were convinced they were right and it's easy now 160 years from that event to to see and contextualize part of that is it's up you know it's abhorrent to uh, i mean there's just so much distance there um and but in that moment and and here's how you challenged me to think about it of course they thought it was right because who goes to die for something they think is wrong whether you think Jesus is the Christ, those disciples of his thought he was, because who goes to get crucified and their family crucified or whatever, whether you think, think that Gandhi's the right kind of, t- or pick a pick a, a historical cause or whatever, we believe this is true, um, which seems insane a hundred years later, or whatever the context is, the winners or the losers, who would this be? Could you help us to understand that a little bit about whether it's about that particular incident or even large or, you know, other incidents come to mind, because we're eventually getting to artificial intelligence, I promise, but I, I feel like this is just a great foundation for us to go to. So both sides think they're right. Can you complete my idea there?
1: That's right. I mean, and as you say, the thinking about the Civil War is a good example of that, because to us, human slavery is so profoundly wrong, it's, it's hard for us to imagine that there were ever people who, who seriously believed that it was right. And I think one of the great challenges for historians is to at least provisionally put themselves in the frame of mind of people who did think it was right. Mm-hmm. Not in the sense that they've been, they're going to become pro-slavery, but they've got to take seriously that other people were pro-slavery. Otherwise, we'll never really understand the motivation which did lead them to risk sacrificing their own lives. And I quite often say this to students. And I think this helps them. I say um, 50 years from now, your grandchildren are going to say to you, did you really believe that back in the year 2022? And And, and they'll say, well, yes, I did, because at the time it didn't seem wrong. But then, so then, of course, the students say to me, OK, so which is it of our beliefs that is going to be proven wrong in the future? And I say, oh, we don't know that. But don't forget that the things you believe in are things you're especially proud of. Right. You know, we all, we all take pride in having certain principles. But nevertheless, we know from the study of history that principles which were held in very high esteem in one generation become completely discredited in another generation. Yeah. Let me give you an interesting example, something which happened to me recently I've got a friend in England who, she and I were at college back in the 1970s. And her daughter, who's now about 22 or three, has come out, she's a lesbian. And she said, when I was with them, she said to me and her mother, in the 70s, you two were homophobic. To which my answer was, first of all, that word didn't exist. Second, the concept didn't exist. Third, I don't think I'd ever met a person who was gay, or if I had, I didn't know that I had, because they hadn't come out. Right. Uh, You can't, well, I mean, you can, obviously, but it's unreasonable for you to impose your judgments. On people who were living 50 years ago, even though they're still, you know, they're the people you're looking at now and expect them to have anticipated the way in which ideas about homosexuality were going to change in the intervening decades. Anyway, the kid was flabbergasted that that I pushed back. But conversely, uh, me and her mom were flabbergasted that she'd make the claim about us. It was a fascinating you know,
0: moment. By the way, just as a another example for you, if your students ever, you know, I don't know if we could predict that. Really, you don't think so? I want you to look at your haircut in the sixth grade, which you were certain was correct, <laughs> yeah. and then your your haircut in high school, and then your haircut at thirty, and um, <clears throat> you know, leave enough there. Right.
1: Um, one, of I mean, the other, I, yeah. one of the other. Yeah. One of the ways we one of the ways we deal with these general issues. Uh, is that that when you go to history graduate school, as I did, you learn to look at it as dispassionately as possible. You try to lower the emotional temperature as much as possible, and talk about people in other times and places a little bit as though they were parts of a scientific experiment. In other words, the whole point is to stay out of the arguments and say, in, it's, it's almost as though you're one of the Olympian gods. You look down upon all of them and say, this group did this, This group did that. Here's why they came into conflict with each other. And you don't you don't get involved in passing judgment at all. You simply stay out of it. So certainly when I'm working as an academic historian, when I'm writing, I try very hard not to let the readers know what my view of it is. And I'm constantly telling students when they're writing history papers, don't intrude your own opinion. Your opinion doesn't matter from the point of view of telling the history. You've got to write it in such a way that a reader, whatever his or her opinion might be, could learn from you. Because what you're doing is explaining, describing what happened and explaining it, and then persuading us that your explanation is a good one. And there's no room there for emotional uh, uh, heightening.
0: How do you learn that skill, I guess, is my question.
1: Oh, it's because you write papers and your, your professor covers them in red ink. <laughs> but
0: I mean, I mean, you want to have an opinion. I mean, you want to come to, you know, uh, you want to come to, uh, you know, if I'm a scientist, I, I, yes, I want, it's wonderful if my lab table or my chemistry set or whatever allows me to come to an empirical truth. It's true, whether I believe it's true or not, it's true, right? Under these lab conditions, these particular conditions that will 1 million percent of the time actually happen. Right. But but then there are things that are, um, you know, hypotheses or theories or whatever. And we want them to work through first that first academic exercise, but then at the end of it, okay, now with that and having whatever my other experience or my intuition is i do think there are black holes or i do think there are these other things how do you how do you nurture an opinion when you don't necessarily have empirical truth like that you have some history you have some you know experience i guess is another word for history but how do you how do you nurture those two things
1: well i think it's because the just as you can be uncertain about the existence of black holes or the uncertain, uncertain about the, the reaction of chemicals under certain conditions. So you can be uncertain of what, what was the cause of a historical event. And there was, I might say, look the cause of world war one was primarily a conflict between nation states, but somebody else might say, no, it's actually a conflict between Imperial systems. And somebody else might say it's all undergirded by, uh, economic competition and you know, there's a lot of lots of different theories of what caused it mm-hmm. and then we, we test the empirical evidence against these theories to see whether it holds up or not in that sense we're doing exactly what a, a, a natural scientist would do but of course the difference is that we can't run the experiment again you know you can put the copper sulfate crystals into the acid 20 times right. but each historical event only happens once so history is one of the social sciences But it's not one of the hard sciences. But just as you would never say that the water was good, but the copper sulfate crystals were bad, Mm -hmm. so it's irrelevant from a historian's point of view to say that you know France was good and Spain was bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your job is simply to say, look at the way in which France and Spain came into conflict. And 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 here's my explanation of why it was that France ended up superior or victorious. Right. Without my opinion, without my my emotional judgment mattering at all all it could do would be to get in the way well
0: i and know I think, you've i'm sorry go ahead i didn't mean to interrupt you
1: yeah well i think we find that easy enough to do when we're talking about conflict between two ancient greek states i mean it would be weird wouldn't it if one of us was violently pro-athenian or pro-spartan but then we find it very hard when we're talking about events which are still within the living memory of certain people like world war ii I mean, eventually it will happen that Hitler will be regarded with the same cold disinterest or, you know, objectivity that now we can look at Genghis Khan or uh, Alexander the Great, but we can't do it yet because he's still too close to us. And similarly, with the question of American slavery, it's still got so many ongoing legacies that we can't yet or we can't easily yet look at it with a cold, dispassionate eye.
0: Yeah. Well, you've obviously mastered it because you are. It it sounds like you're um, from the UK. We haven't touched on that, and you did mention French and Spanish victories. And I know that for my friends from Manchester, it's easier. It's it's hard for them to give any credit to the French or to the Spanish. So obviously, you've moved past that. I um, you you know. It, also, one of the things that jumps out to me is when I was imagining who would we get that I would think of it like dispassionately in the way that you described, the first thing that came to me was Genghis Khan, who is um, from a humanitarian perspective, reviled from a military conquest, tactic, strategic, um, you know, using the tool of his day, reinventing warfare, is admired. It, it, depending upon which circle you're in and, and what lesson you're trying to draw, you can come to wildly different conclusions.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And then also, I think well, the more you study history, the more you realize that everything's got a history, even things like humanitarianism,
0: mm.
1: that, that, that our idea of what it means to be humane is very different from ideas about humaneness in other times and places. you see here's another thing i often say to american students and one of the things i often do in my classroom is take advantage of the fact that i grew up in a different country in a different culture and by now of course a different time that i say when you're growing up in america you're bombarded with the idea that everyone is equal to everyone else and one of the exhilarating things about life in america is this very widespread belief in human equality but there's nothing natural about it. It's an idea, and it's an idea which is currently very highly thought of. But I say, you know, when I was growing up, yeah. and this is in England in the 1960s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, nobody ever talked about human equality. It just never came up at all. Yeah. And uh, in fact, Britain was a very hierarchical society, and everyone had their idea about where, you know, what position on the ladder they were on. And, and quite often, they didn't think it was even right to try to move up the ladder.
0: I had a conversation not long ago with an acquaintance of mine from India. And I brought this up because one of my very best friends had gone to India. He he manages a group of people, part of which his team um, is there. He says it's a beautiful country. It's very interesting. But one of the things that shocked him was while they were at one of the offices, a gentleman came in and I forget what service he was performing. It was like he had a basket and was selling some things, but he had no shoes on. Barefoot, was an older guy in his 60s and... My friend didn't, he wasn't sure what was going on. Was this a retired guy? Was this like, we had, we had no concept of, um, you know, is this a, is this a religious thing? Like what, what, because it's so different than our world. And in a conversation that he had with one of his um, coworkers there, they said, oh, no, 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 that that's his, uh, what we would say cast. I forget how he phrased it, but that's his world. And because um, my buddy wanted to either give him a tip or like, how can I help this? Oh, he's really he's, he's in this social economic situation. How can I help him? Oh, no, no, no. That's not, you know, that would cause difficulty for him and around him. And it was the American in us is shocked by that. We're, we're, we're what, how is that possible? So right. this isn't a judgment of that country or that system or whatever. It just is not what I've been taught by my parents, by my schooling, by my personal experience of my sensibility. And so I had this second conversation with with an acquaintance here. They said, yeah, that's not how I think. That's not how any of my family who lives here in the States and probably not even how we thought when we were there, but it is not an uncommon um, uh, experience to have this sort of, um, you know, this, this caste system yeah, And so, um, it, it, but it does surprise me to use, hear you say that. I'm sure it is everywhere. You know, we got the other side of the tracks in America or the racial tension that we have, or it's really interesting when you end up in different socio. my mother-in-law is Japanese and to, <laughs> to hear her talk about not just other Asian populations, but within Japan, the differences of people. I'm like, wow, that's a pretty common unifying thing of people. We love to figure out who we can, be prejudiced against <laughs> yes so um what where uh, where was your where do you go to university at in the uk
1: i was a student at oxford i was there from 74 to 77
0: okay so do you feel like that about cambridge like i mean they're not oxford
1: <laughs> there's an intense rivalry between the two but uh, it's it's certainly true that they're they're two of the most famous universities in the world And objectively, that's right. That's how it should be because they're excellent places. And I felt incredibly lucky to get in there. And the benefits of having been there have stayed with me ever since. No question about that. Yeah,
0: and Emory, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go on. I was just going to say Emory also, um, you know, we say it because we're in the South. It's the Harvard in the South. But so I've heard so many times when somebody was, you know, commenting to, um, I have a good friend who got his master's in business from Emory and we were teasing him about, where'd you get your, you know, where'd you get your higher degree from? And we were waiting for him to say, I'm not going to name a school, but not Emory. And we said, Emory, I'm like, all right, he passes because it's such a <laughs> high, highly regarded school. Yeah. What captured your imagination to go into this
1: field? Well, as a kid growing up, I was, I, my hometown is a place called Derby. It's in the very center of England. Okay. And it's a, it's a railroad town. It's where they build and maintain railroad trains. So I, I loved trains as a kid, and I still love them now. And I remember being with my dad one day, watching the trains go by, and then he said something to the effect of, before the railways were built, and I suddenly realized that I was looking at something which hadn't always been there. You know, when you're a kid, you tend to assume that the world you find is the world as it's always been. But then gradually you realize, oh, no, it's not like that. It's developed and changed. So I became fascinated by who had built that railway and when it had started and how it changed the city. Because in fact, the city grew and thrived because of that. So that got me interested in history. And then also my my dad was a World War Two veteran. He'd been in a, uh, a ship which was sunk by a German submarine, and he spent a very anxious week in an open boat in the Atlantic Ocean. Wow. And I loved hearing his war stories. And similarly, all my fr- all, all my high school friends were the sons and daughters of World War II veterans. And so we had, we were very aware of living in the generation after the Great Second World War. And that also kind of directed our attention back, and obviously me more than most, because I ended up studying it both at college and then making a career out of it. But early on, I started realizing that history is not only the hist- not it's not only the story of fascinating events and personalities in the past, but it's also the, the story of changing ideas in the past. And, and, and most of the work I've done as a professional historian has been, really in history of ideas, how people think about the world around them and how those ideas have changed.
0: I, I want to get in a few minutes to this idea of the fourth industrial revolution. But before we get there, there is evidently three industrial revolutions ahead of that. But real brief, just sorry, it's my podcast, so I get to interrupt. When you were talking about your um, your father, my grandfather, my dad's dad, was a P-51 pilot. And I got through him to meet a number of um, veterans. Uh, from around the world, I never met a British World War II veteran that served in the Navy. They were either some part of the RAF, mostly because he was a fighter pilot, or um, you know, home defense, or they were land troops when the invasion and we, we began moving into uh, Western Europe and across Europe. I'd never met, and as you were saying that, I was like, wow, contrast that with the several hundred years of history before that, when British military power was all the, by and large, the Navy, that's how they superimpose their will on the world was yeah. um, started with the Navy, the most terrifying force on earth at the time.
1: Right. Although you see, my dad was also part of the Royal Air Force. The ship he was on was a troop ship, which was carrying him from England to Singapore. Okay. And it, it was, and this is one of those amazing stories where it's a, it's in an odd way, it's a mercy because if the ship hadn't been stopped, it would have got in sync to Singapore just in time for him to be captured, and to have become a Japanese prisoner of war, and after which he would have been working on the Burma railroad, and you know would have been likely not able to survive. Yeah. So it's very odd to think that a shipwreck can be a blessing in disguise, but I think in his case it might have been.
0: Isn't that crazy? I've heard that so many times and um, especially I'm, I'm closer to 60 than 50 now. And I, I, it's just taken so many experiences to look back and say, wow, what I, where I thought the universe was interrupting me. And this isn't always true. This is I, sometimes it's just bad luck or it's a terrible circumstance for some people who made it to Singapore for that, you know, they were caught up in that, but so many times in our lives as human beings, we're caught up in the moment and the focus of the moment and it's terrifying and it's uncertain and whatever, when we get some distance from it, it helped our life or it gave us, uh, you know, we, we missed out on the worst or, or whatever. I just hear that so often. And I think uh, at least in my case, I don't acknowledge those um, circumstances a lot. That prophet Garth Brooks said, thank God for unanswered prayers famously in one of his uh, songs. So, um, Thinking is he the, about, is
1: yes. he the same one who wrote the song Everyone Wants to Go to Heaven But No One Wants to Go Yet?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, but he probably did. I do know he wrote the song. Um, I don't think he wrote the song I Wouldn't Take You to a Dogfight Even I Thought You Could Win, but he he probably could have filled out the lyrics for that. But, um, you know, I'm going to get in trouble if I go any further down that road. Okay. Hey, so when we think about the... It, could you help us just sort of a summary... If you think about it, the Industrial Revolution, when we, when those of us who aren't historians throw that term around, what was that time and place, and what was sort of the characteristics of the first, and if you know the second and third or whatever, how would we think about these big ideas?
1: I I think of it like this: that starting in about 1760, a group of English inventors and entrepreneurs started bringing the production of textiles together in factories, cotton and wool textiles, inventing spinning machines and then a bit later inventing weaving machines, first linking them to water wheels for the power and then linking them to steam engines. And then that was accompanied by some changes in the iron and steel business, learning how to make it much more quickly and in large quantities, and to changes in the coal mining industry. And then starting in the 1820s, the development of railroads, which made it possible to carry heavy bulk goods over long distances at low cost. And it's the combination of all those things which really set industrialization in motion. And of course, it was linked to things like the development of the principles of industrial capitalism, which enable particular individuals to take calculated risks, borrowing money to build the factories in the expectation that they can profit from it, and then competing against each other to increase the quality of the goods, increase output, uh, benefit from economies of scale, bring down the price per unit, all this, a a huge array of things. And then different people have different ideas about what's often called the second industrial revolution. I take that to mean the switch from making those big primary goods to the idea of making consumer goods so there's at the very end of the 1800s a sort of 1880 to 1920 the development of bicycles motor cars refrigerators washing machines typewriters all the all the labor saving devices which make life much easier for us today than it was 200 years ago so I mean, I guess I would have talked about the the high-tech revolution of our time as as the third rather than the fourth. But obviously, these are just labels that we stick onto processes after the fact. But anyway, certainly, uh, what they all have in common is the idea that the past or the future doesn't have to be like the past. We can make things better. We can live better. We can increase the safety of life we can increase the quality of the goods we live from, and we can make the whole society wealthier or the whole world wealthier as we do it.
0: Originally, I was interested in the um, the idea of these different revolutions. What do they mean? Um, some people will dwell on the fact that it's steam and this is what steam enabled. Others will be the appliances that you were just talking about were enabled by electricity. And you know, here are the different things. But what really eventually caught my imagination was if you measure, I don't know what the time frame is, 1,000, 2,000 years, you can see marginally incremental increase in living wage for people in um, the ability to almost the whole world, everybody in the whole world, most of their job, most of the time was how do I get food in for me or for somebody else? That was almost exclusively it. Regardless of what that is, hunting, farming, fishing, whatever it is, how do we stay alive by putting clean water and food inside us. And unfortunately for some parts of the world, that's still true. But when, when steam came along and I could get water out of the mines and I could, you know, do these other things and then create the need or create the opportunity to have bulk goods and then move bulk goods. But really it's this radical shift and the opportunity for human beings to feed themselves and then maybe do something other than feed myself. And you, and you, and you see sort of this exponential thing, and a lot of predictions were made pretty quickly. Hey, look, this is how it's going to, two things. One, um, this is this is going to um, change negatively for the workers of the world, the world as we know it, or the opposite seems to be these wild predictions of, um, you know, it's just going to be this utopia and, and these other things. And in particular, I want to bring it to today. I, on my show, we get a lot of, Conversa- or we have a lot of conversations, a lot of guests that make predictions based upon history or, or trends as they would see it that none of them are history professors. you're my first history professor, so I'm excited to get your perspective. And in particular, it, it seems to be this two-pronged conversation around, depending upon their perspective as a pessimist or an optimist, that when we see these twin pillars of automation either through software, or enhanced mechanization through the advances in material science and the tools that can do these things, and then, and then, kind of in the enveloping all of that, or maybe they're so integrated, it feels like it's together. We love to throw the terms out: artificial intelligence and machine learning, but just all these systems working together that are highly networked, highly connected, that can do the jobs of people. And therefore, if you sort of draw that, extrapolate that, it's going to do one of two things. It's either going to displace all of these people, and, and now what happens, there's a negative consequence, or it's going to displace them to a life of luxury, or if not luxury, certainly tranquility and peace, and it's going to be these other things. And, and how this relates for me to you is as I listen to your talk about whether you gave the example of war or these other things it almost feels like we're running a risk of we're going to predict that um, we're going to make predictions based upon these circumstances on an area that's very difficult to predict. We don't, it's not that certain. It feels certain looking at it 300 years later, but in the moment, I don't, I don't know how you predict that. So I just, I would love to get your reaction Is as you listen to the, your computer science or your artificial intelligence friends down the hall or across the street at Georgia Tech or whatever, you know, talking about these big ideas, as a historian, how do you think about it?
1: Well, I'm aware that we've got to make predictions in all kinds of ways. In other words, as we think ahead, we have to decide how many schools to build, which is based upon our best guess of how many kids will be born in the next generation. We have to build hospitals Uh, based on our judgment of how many people will fall sick. And um, obviously, economists are very heavily um, dedicated to making reasonable predictions about the future. But in every case, there are hundreds of examples of the way in which a reasonable estimate turned out to be wrong. And I think um, predictors who are self-aware know that they're going to be wrong and that the further into the future they make a prediction, the more likely it is that the prediction will be off off target. But that doesn't mean that we can stop doing it. We have to do it taking into account the very best evidence we've got. and of course that evidence comes from history. The only fund of experience we've got to make our predictions is is our knowledge of what the trends have been up to this point so that we can reasonably project them forwards. So that, in other words, when I was talking a minute ago about um, autocratic government, because we've got hundreds of examples of autocratic governments failing to work very well, it's reasonable to say autocratic government will continue to malfunction in the future. That's as a generalization. But what we can't say is this particular catastrophe will be set to this particular autocrat. We can't do that. Right. And so, as you said, with the technology, I think it's very largely a matter of the temperament of the person who's making the predictions. That if you're an optimist, you can certainly look at the history of technology and say, this is absolutely incredible. It's made life so much better that we've got every reason to hope that it'll continue to make life even better into the future, so that we'll look back on the year 2022 as a year of astonishing hardship, because we didn't have the technologies we're going to have in the future. But conversely, if you're a pessimist, you can say, look at the way in which all these technologies, which were supposed to be so great, actually gave rise to all kinds of horrible new problems. That's going to continue. Mm -hmm. And in other words, what really matters is the temperament of the person predicting, because both groups can can draw on plenty of evidence to support the case they're making.
0: Yeah. As you think about that, would you consider yourself an optimist or a pessimist or do you not? impose those labels on yourself?
1: Oh, I'm an optimist, no question about it. And uh, my view is that the Industrial Revolution was a wonderful thing, and that we've never lived better than we do now, and it's exactly because of that. In fact, industrialization is the only process we've ever discovered to eliminate mass poverty. I mean, if you look at the whole history of the world, nearly everybody who ever lived was desperately poor. Whereas now there are huge numbers of people in the world, literally billions of people in the world, who are not desperately poor. And that's because of industrialization. And if you and if you're not poor, you're likely to be healthier, to live longer, to get better education, to have more rights for women. I mean, it's to be better in every way. So, yes, I'm definitely an optimist. And although I'm aware of huge problems, I look toward the future with a lot of confidence.
0: I had a, a guess that it was my. Uh, company indulged me and allowed me to have this guest on. We don't normally wade into conversations that are very focused on political ideology or, you know, the, the, the big areas that, unless your name's on the podcast, you don't want to do that. Um, but he was, I invited him in because I had been surprised by the conversations I heard of the college aged, um, I should say children, people about the age of my children in their late teens through mid to late 20s. And the vitriol most of them had towards the idea of this, of, of the um, form of government called capitalism, not not to defend capitalism, but they really felt very strong. And I would listen to them. And I, I start to ask questions. And by the same token, there were a number of um ways of governing, if they had formed it, and I'm trying to be very respectful, if they had really formed a thought, but there are certain forms of government that they thought this would be much better than this. And I would ask questions like, in what instance have you seen that in history working out that way of the form that you're talking about Or, or some new imagined form? And sometimes they would come up with their own sort of version of something um, all right. I know I recognize that every generation thinks that they discovered music and sex. But uh, assuming that that's, um, you know, of course, not my children, my children are angels. I invited this guy Devlin Lyles on who is with an organization out of Houston, but he is the um, at the time he was a board member of the um, ethical capitalists group out of this particular, I think it's Houston. And I was just curious, help me to understand, what is that? What is an ethical capitalist? And one of the things, I I believe that that idea was started by the guy who founded Whole Foods. And they're not saying this particular form of government is without sin and has not erred spectacularly in the past. But when you look at the given human beings tendencies and what's been on Earth, here's the here's the types of. ways that human beings have organized themselves. Here's the result. And he said many of the things that you said, here's the result in the world, a real world history of these different types of um, productivity being applied, and where they go right and where they go wrong, and etc. And the reason why they put the ethical on there is unethical capitalism. Well, the single biggest point I think, professor, was the the purpose of a company is profit. He said that was coined by these groups. It's not true. We don't believe that to be true. The purpose of the company is to do something else. But the thing that gives them the ability to do it is profit. In other words, as a human being, our purpose is not to eat. Um, I'm thinking of the 30 year younger version of me when I was just at an airborne infantry, not the current version it's not to eat or drink. It's what we do to live and survive and whatever. But our purpose is different as human beings than that. In that same way, and he went and so I've spent some time learning about that, and I don't know that I'm fully settled, but that seems to resonate with me, especially with the historical facts of here's what is difficult and challenging as the sub-Saharan Africa is here is still how it's raised up here's still how these things are benefiting the rest of the world in a real way, and by every form of measurement, poverty has drastically decreased, disease has drastically decreased. These are the things that the facts seem to say. Right.
1: No, capitalism is an absolutely fascinating um, study in paradoxes, isn't it? Because a successful capitalist doesn't have to be altruistic to do good to the rest of the world. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is a point that Adam Smith made way back in, in 1776 in The Wealth of Nations, there's a famous passage where he says, when I go to the butcher or the baker to get my food, I'm not asking him to think about my interests. I'm, I'm inviting him to think about his own interests. But while he's thinking about his own interests, one of his interests is to give me good bread, because then he knows I'll come back. Yeah, And uh, that I mean, that to me seems like one of it's, it's an almost miraculous characteristic of economics, which is self-interested. But can nevertheless have profoundly beneficial social consequences. But as you say, and as your friend obviously was saying, it doesn't mean it's necessarily beneficial. I mean, obviously, one of the early capitalist ventures was the slave trade. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very, very profitable. And the people who were doing it found it hard to shake the habit because it was so profitable. But luckily, we also have. Um, other concerns intrude constantly, and they ought to. And and one of the things that the politicians do is prevent people from monetizing unscrupulous activities, or at least we try to. The law is constantly trying to catch up with unscrupulous businessmen. And there's always unscrupulous businessmen, and they're always giving capitalism a very bad name. But certainly in the long run, it's shown itself to be a very, very durable system and a very adaptable one. I mean, I think one another of the great surprises of history is that when Karl Marx and Frederick Engels developed the theory of, of communism in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, they were absolutely certain that it was morally superior to capitalism. And yet, as we know, in practice, there's never been a Marxist regime in history which had a good human rights record. There was had terrible human rights records. And even... Um, and obviously, to, from the Marxist point of view, even more surprising, they, they didn't pass the test of time. They could linger on. But in the end, they were going to be snuffed out by history. And so the way in which Chinese alleged communism lived on was by abandoning communism.
0: One of the things that I'm interested in, sort of, in our last 20 minutes or so together is just to bring this all to now. As I said, I talked to a lot of technologists three or four years ago, maybe five years ago, in my public speaking role, not my podcast role, I would hear all the time, if you're a truck driver, you better get out of the truck driving business because an autonomous vehicle is about to replace you. Three weeks ago, I had um, Daniel Vassar on who is a logistics uh, supply chain guru, Um, been in that industry for 20 years, knows the automation well, knows the artificial intelligence around it well, and is begging, please, people go get a CDL. I need truck drivers. There are not enough. And it is nowhere in our immediate future by immediate he means in his probably lifetime. And he's a pretty young man in his uh, mid to late 40s. That autonomous anything in particular, that last mile, maybe we build out some special road from the port to a big distribution or whatever. It, it that happens in Western Australia and some other places. But Impracticality in, in a pluralistic, complex world like United States—that's not on the immediate horizon. Or floods of drones coming in delivering our toothpaste and whatever. Um, Said so, possible, you know, who knows? But practically today, we have a supply chain shortage. the primary reason is because we have a people shortage, um, and so as you whether it's that or in other predictions that we're saying kind of like in the first industrial revolution, or actually I read this in the fifties, we're going to have nuclear powered vacuum cleaners. That'd be interesting to see, or we're going to have, you know, you've, you've mentioned a number of them yourself, or, you know, uh, Mr. Ford's, uh, automobiles are passing fad. Don't sell your horses. This is not going to work. And on. And on. I printed a whole list of them here that I think are pretty funny as you think about it, not just as a historian, But as a citizen here in the United States and just your perspective and your optimistic outlook, how much can we weigh into, do you think, this idea and future work that these tools are going to displace people in such a way that um, it's likely, just based upon your experience, that um, this kind of concern is well-founded?
1: Well, Well, I think the concern is not well-founded, because if you look at the history of work, it shows that as the population keeps rising, there keeps on being jobs for nearly everybody. So that probably right now in America, more people are working than ever have done before, even though we've got all the technologies. Now, it's certainly true that particular jobs fall out of favor, or before, they're no longer necessary. We no longer have people who make barrels, you know, the coopers. We no longer have people who make arrows. We no longer have people who thatch roofs. We no longer have people who pick cotton by hand. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of jobs which have disappeared. And of course, if you're in the position of seeing your job be about to disappear, it's a very, very stressful thing. But history certainly shows us that every single time, new jobs have come along. I mean, one of the really astonishing things, I think, is that by now, American agriculture only employs about 2% of the whole population, whereas at the time of the revolution, it employed about 90% of them. And yet, the great problem of American agriculture today is overproduction. That 2% is producing too much. So then we have to have price subsidies and and so on. Uh, So people do have to continue to accept the reality that certain types of work are always going to fall into into disuse because technology has displaced them. But it would be very unreasonable to think that there will be no work because every single time in the past that a new technology has come along, people have left that, but they've gone to other work, and a vast array of new types of work have grown up in place of the old ones. So no reason for pessimism there. Somebody and incidentally, I, I think yeah. I'm more enthusiastic about driverless vehicles than your friend is. It's astonishing to me that we put up with the fact that 40,000 people get killed on the road every year. I mean, if 40,000 Americans died in plane crashes, we'd, we'd, we'd ground all the fleet, wouldn't we? Right.
0: And they did. And we completely, you know, that's a conversation I had with somebody. Uh, it's been a while, but and my audience heard this before, but it was, you know, to take a commercial air flight. 50 years ago was not as certain as it is today planes fell out of the sky and we created so many redundant systems within the planes redundancy within the um machining of parts redundancy of humans to back the plane up to check all the things the pilot the load master, like all of these things and a interwoven mesh of both human oversight and machines to manufacture, maintain, operate, retire, retrofit, over and over and over to where it's a shock to the whole world. If something disappears or falls. And usually we find out it's either purposeful. Somebody did it on purpose and deliberately attempted to defeat systems. And we're making systems to prevent that. Or, It's some catastrophic series of, you know, thing, or, you know, a meteor fell out of the sky and you can't actually, God, you can't protect against, but it is. um, But when we invented the airplane, we also invented the airplane crash. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the, these, these twin things, but we weren't satisfied with, well, you know, it did 98% good. So this 2% bad. I guess that's okay. We want to make it as statistically zero as we can. And so let's be enthusiastic about that.
1: Exactly. So I do sometimes, I mean, this is, in a way, this is me making a prediction, even though I'm, I've already told you it's impossible. That <laughs> I th- The day will come when we'll look back with amazement that we'll let individuals drive. Because once they've worked out all the problems, driverless vehicles will be so much safer than human drivers are. You know, they'll right. never get drunk. They'll never have bad tempers. They'll never be texting. All things which lead to car crashes will go away. Right. So it's... It seems to me like an invention which is making rapid strides. I mean, it may be true that right now we haven't got enough truckers, but the trend is certainly towards automation, and it's a good trend.
0: I completely agree. That's the trend. I love it. His point, I think, was two things. One, I don't know if it was him or somebody else said, look, 35%, it's estimated, at least in the circles that he talks to, of all the jobs we're going to need in the next 50 years haven't been invented yet. They will be invented there will be technicians that serve wind turbines or what choose your thing. They will be invented. They will be different. There's a famous study that I've uh, referred to before I wrote an article in ag tech and the state of California was sued. One of the universities was sued because they helped to fund a tomato picker. And this group of advocates came and said, you use public money to fund a tool that put people out of work. And at the end of the case, famous case available on the interwebs, which is always accurate, showed that actually the, um, the courts found, and it was universally dismissed, that what happened when, yes, that tomato uh, picker was made, and it was much more efficient than human beings at picking tomatoes. But here are the consequences of that. They didn't lose workers they needed more workers. And those workers were no longer in the field. They were in the cannery because they had so many tomatoes, they had to get them in. And the price, the market went down and people who couldn't afford fresh tomatoes before could now afford fresh tomatoes. And the chemistry part of it, they had to develop a little bit firmer, but still flavorful tomatoes. So they generated a whole new economic model of people that are Uh, created a tomato plant that would allow this machine to go do this. And then it created um, boutique farms where you don't want it picked mechanically. You want to pick. So these real soft, different type of tomatoes, but they were much more expensive because they still had hand workers out there. It was this explosion of goodness and the mechanics that have to fix the machines. And then the connectivity people that have the telecom that has to get the telecom to the farm to, like in every measurable way. And I'm not saying that's true in every case, but human beings, we—it it is in our DNA to innovate. It is in our DNA to attempt to improve. We don't keep trying to club saber tiger tigers over the head. We make sharp sticks and then we get a group of us. And, and I don't want to be overly Pollyanna, but I, I just feel like um, our demise by tech, by, um, you know, sort of this natural technology thing is probably greatly exaggerated. Yeah. Where, other than where to find you, because we're going to have links to the thing, what are some of the things that you're thinking about and you're teaching your students now in history um, to critically think and think through?
1: Well, I uh, at the moment, I'm teaching a course on American environmental history, and that's a course I've taught many times in the past. <laughs> and I teach it in a way which is which tries to counteract the tendency to apocalyptic thinking in environmentalism. Mm. I mean, my view is, you won't be surprised in view of what I've said so far, that we've got some very serious environmental problems that we need to confront, but but that we've never been better positioned to be able to confront them. Clearly, we're going to have to make an enormous energy uh, switch this century, and the quicker we can do it, the better it will be. Mm -hmm. but there's every sign that we're going to be able to do it. One of the things industrialization has done is to make us far more resilient than we were previously. We're very successful at feeding people, at keeping them alive, at keeping them healthier. The quality of life is much better than it was before the environmental movement started in the 1960s. It's got a lot to be proud of, even though there's still a lot of things to do. I, I also teach courses on the history of industrialization. So quite often I have the same students who take the industrial class and then they take the environmental one. And I say these two thing, these two fit together perfectly. You've got to be thinking of both. You have to carry on thinking about the importance of economic growth, even while you're worrying about problems of pollution or problems of endangered species or exotic species. And I, I suppose I'm always encouraging students not to compartmentalize too much, mm-hmm. but to remember connections, because I also teach classes on American foreign policy, mm-hmm. where I, and then of course, I'm having to say, you know, it's still a dangerous world. We still need to take seriously the hazards and the political instability that we face. These things all go together. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I mean, by now I'm, I think I'm the oldest member of the Emory history department. I'm 65 and I've lived through a, a couple of generations of professors coming and going. It's very interesting to me to, to be involved in the hiring of new ones or just finishing their doctoral degrees. They're in their late 20s and 30s, uh, because in many ways, they're reconceptualizing how to think about history. Although, what they're, I think what they're actually doing is asking the same old questions, but in a, in a new guise. Now, they've grown up in a different world than I did. and the impression that world makes on you. I think, you know, I'm sure you're you're familiar with this, that between the ages of about 15 and 25, that's when your image of what the world is really like gets fixed. Right. So in my case, that was between 1971 and 81, I guess. Right. So in that sense, I'm becoming a fossil, you know, I'm becoming this superannuated (laughs) relic of another era. But I do think I've still got something to say to to new upcoming generations, even though they can often criticize the assumptions I make. And because the students are so charming and many of them are so intelligent, they can often catch me out and say, yeah, but think about it this way. And I do do learn from them the need to, to be revisiting my preconceptions. But at the same time, I think I can still offer them reassurances based on a, what's now a long lifetime of experience. So it's a two-way street.
0: Yeah, I love the phrase iron sharpening's iron that many philosophical and religious thoughts have in that in that or Greek even thought where as we contend but not in a pugilistic way, but as a def- here's my idea, let me defend my idea and you try, you know, this the scientific method does this when they do it well, does it amazingly well. These are you know, as I work through this process and sometimes I, I get a little anxious. Um, I'm, I'm calcif- calcificating, but I'm not fossilized yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm tracking with you, but I just mean that um, one of the things that I loved about my peer group is the willingness to, um, to wade through the idea to have the discussion. Sometimes it's a debate. Sometimes it's just a discussion, but, but to work through it, like bring your idea, let's contend, whether it's a philosophical idea or a morality or whatever. When you were talking about environment for, I just confess for myself, in early days of thinking about the environment, I got tired of people telling me that my perspective was wicked and wrong, that the, the right way to think about The environment and how we should engage with energy production or whatever was this way. And I really resisted paying attention to them. I've since changed my mind in terms of the value of that conversation significantly, but it was less that I thought there was an imminent catastrophic event. And it was more about kind of like what we see going on in the world today. What happens if I don't have to worry about energy production from some other part of the world? If I really do have. Energy independence, that is, I don't have to have a gas station down the street with petrol down in the whatever, and, you know, or is there a way to get to whether it's, you know, whatever the alternative nuclear, uh, hydro, um, um, solar, wind, whatever the combination of things are based upon where I'm at geographically on the planet. Where, where we have some measure of freedom, which is another way to say independence, some measure of freedom that benefits me economically, benefits my family, benefits my environment around me. These do not have to be juxtapositioned or opposed ideas. We all, what's that phrase? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. We all show up here at the table. My neighbor and I started a conversation a little over a year ago about what if we were able to through some combination of solar panel or whatever, rely on our grid less, not from a prepper or whatever perspective, but these storms that come through Georgia on occasion, once every four or five years with ice, and we're out of power, and you know, all these other things, whatever, we're able to get independent. And so now I find myself aligned, we have different motivations, but we have the same similar outcome in mind of energy efficiency of resource um, conservation, whether it's water or power or whatever it is. And now I find myself really engaging in the conversation. I just hope more and more people continue to have an open mind um, about whether it's that topic or many of the other ones that you've talked about. Have you found your students are pretty open-minded to engaging in the conversation?
1: Very much so. Yeah, they're they're wonderful people. Um, Obviously, they're young, and their their youth brings limitations, but it also brings incredible benefits. Right. They haven't yet hardened up too much, and and it's it's wonderful to get them or to witness them real recognizing the complexities, and recognizing that very often when you have a conflict over things like energy policy, it really is a case where reasonable and intelligent people are going to disagree, mm-hmm. and that what they've got to do is to take seriously both sets of ideas even though eventually they're going to have to make choices and then act upon their choices. So it's, um, I mean, I, I think I discovered early on that I love being a teacher and that one of the things I have got to try to do is to teach them about the complexities of a, of a complicated world and the paradoxes of the world, the fact that things don't aren't always what they seem and that it's very difficult to assign praise and blame and that we mustn't fall back on overly simplistic explanations all those things yeah it's a pleasure
0: professor allett thank you patrick thank you for coming on the show today i really appreciate it and um uh i think you've brought a little uh, or a lot of perspective to this uh conversation that we're having and i really appreciate it we will uh make sure our audience gets directed to your conversations and your lectures uh that you've posted on youtube thank you very much
1: thanks a lot Dave. bye-bye
0: Thank you everybody, and if you've enjoyed the show, please like, subscribe, share, and comment. We'll see you next time on the QTF Experience.
1: Take care.